What was important is, at least to me, was I didn't know what I didn't know. I mean, I had no business training whatsoever. So therefore, you know, I'd say, well, we're passionate about this, let's just do it. And then all of a sudden you, you begin to learn the risk elements and you learn by doing and it doesn't always work. From Vermont Center for Emerging Technologies, it's Start Here, a podcast sharing the stories of active, aspiring, and accidental entrepreneurs. Today we sit down to talk about Vermont's economy and culture of innovation with Bill Schubert, who is a serial entrepreneur, author, gourmet cook, BPR commentator, and public policy thought leader. Welcome, this is Sam Roach-Gerber and Dave Bradbury, recording from the Consolidated Communications Technology Hub in downtown Burlington, Vermont. Hi, Bill. How are you? Welcome, Bill. This is thrilling for us to be here. So well, we're, we're intimidated, so, so go no, easy no, on no. us, please. No, Softballs. I, I'm, I'm thrilled to be here, I'm, so thank you. I'm embarrassed to say I've lived in the state for almost six years, and this is today I meet Bill Schubert, finally. So it's a big right, day for and me. And Senator Leahy, you need to meet, too. That's I know. the other one. Bucket <laughs> list. Yeah. Never Bucket met list him. items. Yeah. Check them off, Sam. <laughs> Bill, why do you love Vermont? You've, you've lived here a long time. What's special about this place? Well, you asked two different questions. Why do I love Vermont? And a lot of that has to do with the, um, the nature of the state, the culture of the state, um, the four seasons. And part of it is because I've just lived here for 70 years. Um, so it's what I know. And the second question you asked is, what makes Vermont special? And my answer is nothing. We love to believe that we are special, and, but so does Wyoming and New Hampshire and Maine. And it's fine to say that we are special, but if we begin to believe it too much, we overlook the opportunities that are in front of us to really become special. Mm. And so I bristle when I, when I hear that, oh, we're unique, we're the best, we're the most this, the most that, because we're not in every way. And, and if we persist in believing that, as I say, then we miss what's right in front of us that could be better. So like learning opportunities from folks outside the state and things like exactly. that. Or much exactly. Or I mean, it's exceptionalism or hubris. And I, yeah. I always remind people, I love Vermont, but yep. I, have, I have damaged DNA of some sort because 320 million other Americans say we're wrong. Yeah. They choose to be elsewhere. Yeah, so that's right. Let's find our tribe. Let's make it the best place we can Exactly. We can have uh, together. So, I'm with you. Um, so you've started uh, a record company. You've started what I one of the earlier e-commerce media businesses here in Vermont. You started the Vermont Journalism Trust, which which merged with Vermont Digger. Yep. Uh, in journalism um, and and as an author. Um, why do you keep starting stuff? Are you unemployable, or <laughs> is just just this is how you've always known you needed to be? I, um, it's a really good question, and I, I'm not even sure I'm the person who can answer it. I, I, I have, I would almost say that the entrepreneurial, um, my entrepreneurial sense has really been driven to a degree by naivete. I mean, you know, we, my brother and I loved music, and we loved recording technology, so we bought a barn a pig barn in North Ferrisburg and converted it to a recording studio and borrowed a ton of money and populated it. But neither one of us knew very much about business. 
So you're constantly reacting, you know, I mean... Is this the Keystone the, Cops approach to Yeah, sort of, exactly. Or? I mean, the, you know, the bank would call and say, uh, Bill, gosh, you know, you're overdrawn $700 today. Oh, I'll take care of it by 3 o'clock. And then, you know, you scramble and sell an old Volkswagen or something and raise some money down to the bank. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, that took us into the music industry. And we... Uh, Phyla Records was around for probably 12 years and was remarkably successful from a cultural standpoint. In fact, most of what we produced is still available in the streaming services and some of it's in Vinyl's back, so... Oh, no, I know, I know. This could be a time to bubble it up again. Yeah. What type of music? Um, It started out being primarily folk and singer-songwriter, and then it branched into jazz with Kilimanjaro and Paul Asbell, and um, then there was even some New Age and even some serious music. I mean, you know, modern composer music. Um, And uh, it was just great fun. And then the, the record industry sort of imploded in 1979, and... Um, a lot of people went bankrupt, and within a three-month period, three of our distributors went bankrupt. And all of a sudden, our receivables were cut by two-thirds. It was L.A., Long Island, and Philadelphia. Right, and the Internet was still a DARPA defense yeah, tool of some exactly. sort. Yeah, exactly. Right? We were just getting into CDs at that point and, and digital recording. And so we took the protective bankruptcy route, and continued working for a couple of years until we could pay, I think we ended up paying 50 cents on the dollar, and then we sold the company to Rounder. And then Rounder bought Smithsonian and a couple of other labels, and then they sold to the Concord Jazz Group, and then the Concord Jazz Group sold to a private equity company. So Philo's still around, but it's you know it's now owned by private equity Somebody, investors. Right. And did that set the seeds? For, for resolution? Yes, definitely, because the studio was always separate financially. And what we did is we saw the convergence of technology coming. We saw that you know television production and audio production um, were really going to be one and the same. So we looked around for a film company, and we found Jim Taylor and Barbara Potter on Church Street with Blue Jay Films, and we put together a merger, and we started looking at all the tax records to, you know, the property tax records to find rich people. And we invited them to a party, one in Burlington and one in Woodstock. And we got our initial round of funding from them and went right into business, primarily as a film and audio production company. Mm-hmm. And then <clears throat> it just began blossoming from there. And it's funny because people say, well, you were the president of this, like, you know, you were the brains behind it. And the reality was, when the music stopped, I was the only person who wasn't a brilliant audio engineer or a brilliant cinematographer. So you had to make yourself useful somehow. Exactly. So they said, okay, well, you'll have to be the president. So I said, okay. You're like, I've put out enough fires to figure this out. I love it. And you, if I recall, I mean, you had about over 100 people at at its zenith. Were you that large of an employer? Oh, no, we were much larger. We were, we got up to about 175, just shy of 200. And we were in a couple of hundred thousand square feet. Um, We were processing at our peak um, 
$220 million worth of credit cards a year. And um, there were days when we were shipping 20,000 units a day, wow. parcels. Um, and, but the company clearly began to split about five years before because we were also doing high-budget production for Turner, A&E, Discovery, um, and uh, the History Channel. Um, big, high-budget documentaries. And, and we were sharing the technology, but it got to a point where the production people came to us and said, look, we don't want to absorb as much overhead as you're building in this e-commerce and fulfillment operation. It makes total sense. So spun that off. Right. So Resolution Productions, which still is in business, um, Barb and Jim still travel the world shooting. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, all over the world, yeah. And then how did you get into the, the journalism, I won't, I'll call it a business, but the, the trust really yeah. is sort of this next evolution of... The, the interest there was we saw the whole journalism industry changing radically. You know, the disappearance of display advertising and advertising revenue. Um, <clears throat> you know, even back then you could see the free press struggling right. to, to really find itself in this new world. And um, we were really intrigued by this emerging model called ProPublica. And the genesis of ProPublica was we're going to raise philanthropic dollars and we're going to commission deep journalism, not just investigative journalism, but deep journalism using philanthropic dollars and we're going to give that content to the newspapers because they can't afford, they can't afford it internally anymore. And the model was remarkably successful and, and still is today. And we decided to just replicate sort of an HO gauge version of that in Vermont. So we pulled together a bunch of the best journalists in Vermont, many of whom were out of work, um, and started the Vermont Journalism Trust. And my wife, Kate, who's a graduate of uh, Columbia's journalism school um, and had worked most of her life in journalism and was actually head of news and polling at the old Prodigy Network. Um, anybody, That's awesome. Anybody remember Prodigy? I remember the name, yeah. I sure don't. Um, <laughs> gray hair. I get gray hair. I can remember that. Yeah. And what so, year was that 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 kicked off? Um, that would have been, oh, I'm so bad with dates. I would, good. I would say years ago. probably uh, 98, 99 in there. And then at the same time, Anne Galloway had lost her job. And was really intrigued with, you know, what was going on in the nonprofit journalism online only. Because it was largely the loss of display advertising and the cost of print, print production that was decimating Vermont's journalism. Right. And she jumped in. And then a couple of years later, my Kate, Kate ran the conferences, the Vermont Journalism Trust conferences. And um, then um, we merged. Great. Um, Sam, you will get a question in here. I'm just like... I, you know what? You I'm, do you. I'm, I'm along for the ride. I'm just curious, you know, with the sort of mindset of entrepreneurialism, which is almost by definition, you're going after something bigger than the resources you have. Right. Right. You're, you're reaching for it. 
And is it, is it the media business that really inspired you, or was it just the, the, the value of media and sort of the cultural impact of, of the, the, the modicum of media of the day? You know what I mean? Like, used to be DVDs and, and, and published television and newspapers. So do you have a sense of what pulled you along? It was, I have to say, it actually was nothing that noble. It was much more curiosity about where things were going. And I, I will tell you the smartest thing we ever did. We did it for 14 years. You know, we would talk a lot about strategic planning in an industry where everything was changing. You know, we started in beta, beta tape, and then we went to VHS, then CDs and DVDs, and, you know, everything was just changing at lightning speed. Um, so, you know, we would say, well, where's this going? And we realized we didn't know, so we started something called the Shelburne Conference, and we would simply take over the inn at Shelburne Farms in that slow period between um, uh, Labor Day and leaf peeping season. And we'd take all the rooms, and we would f invite 26 people, because that's the only number of people who could fit at fit the, in the table. Yeah. And we would invite them to come to what was called the Shelburne Conference. And we never used the name resolution. There was no marketing to, of resolution. And two-thirds of the people we invited were our broadcast and publishing clients. And it was primarily CEOs and decision makers. And then one-third was people we wanted to be our clients. And that became our strategic planning strategy. We would pick a topic like changes in intellectual property law or, you know, new technologies in e-commerce. And we'd invite three speakers who were allowed to only speak for 20 minutes. And then there was an hour and a half of conversation and no recording. Sign me up for that format, right? So that, that became, we would sit there quietly, pretty much unidentified as resolution and listen to these industry executives. And it got to the point where people would be really upset if they weren't invited to the conference. That's how you know you have a hit, right? And we wanted to keep, you know, refreshing the... But that was, the, I think, strategically the smartest thing we ever did because we would listen to these people talk about their problems. So then we'd go figure out solutions and then we'd go visit them and say, well, you have this problem. You were using the design thinking process before you knew it, right? And believe me, <laughs> we fell into these things. We didn't sit around. So, Bill, when did you start writing? Um, when I was in prep school. And um, I was always interested in writing. It was always primarily fiction. Um, and then it wasn't until I retired about 10 years ago that I really had the time to pay attention to it. And I published a collection of short stories, which has done unbelievably well and still keeps going. And I just, my eighth book just came out. Wow. Congratulations. Awesome. Thanks. And um, my last book was with uh, an imprint of Simon & Schuster and has done very well. And I've just finished a new book, which is scaring the daylights out of me. And it, probably next week it'll go out to critical readers and the literary editor. What's scary? I've rewritten Dante's Inferno 700 years later with the impact of technology 
and the idea that wow. what was what were sins 700 years ago yeah. are not sins now, not all of them. But we, with the addition of technology and communications, we've managed to scale certain sins. Like boom, amen. Right? Like <laughs> we are so intellectually overmatched here today. It's crazy. So, no. Like well, well, after seven books, you were like, "How can I really challenge yeah, myself?" I'm going to need a green juice to catch up. <laughs> so th- th- you've everything you've published has been post retirement. Yes, that's incredible. Yeah. I mean, I've been published short stories here and there, sure. but I've never just had the time to really pay serious attention to it. And I'm very zen about it because. Many of our clients were publishers. I know how they work. I know how they're motivated. And I've worked, I've self-published. I've published with traditional publishers, and I published once with a hybrid publisher. So I, I understand, and I don't have any delusions of grandeur. I mean, if I get, you know, 20 emails a month saying, God, I loved your new book. Yeah. It's all I need. And <laughs> so good. what motivates you? Just the, the creativity that sort of... I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't. I love writing. I love language. Um, I'm not. I, I often will rewrite a book seven or eight times before it even goes out to critical readers. And what does your process look like? Do you write every day or? No, I, I try to, but I, I still am very active in civic stuff. So that, you know, matters. But. I tend to write in the morning when I'm fresh. Yeah. And I can't write for more than two or three hours without just getting... Running out of steam. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like Bill's retirement is uh, a little busier than well, most people. Well, I mean, <laughs> retirement's not the word. It's failed retirement is, is a just absolute characteristic <laughs> of great entrepreneurs, right? You well, just I talk don't to know when these, to say when, right? I talk to all these friends of mine who say, oh, my God, Bill, I'm going to retire I'm just, I'm going to die. What am I going to do? Because men, especially men, are so used to taking their identity from their work and they can't separate them and they just envisage dying. And basically what I say is people will ask you to do things, say no for six months, think about what you want to do in your retirement, then start saying yes, Mm. and just know that you will work as hard in your retirement as you did when you were working, but you'll have choice. Right. You, can, you can think about what you want to do, what you're passionate about, and you can take a nap or read a book. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like working at VSET, Sam. Right? Yeah, pretty much. We've got a hammock in the back. We've got a hammock in the back and nap pods. So I, I'm curious, being an entrepreneur, an author, a public policy thinker and shaper, how does one help the other? Are they intertwined as... Let's say you, you were a fiction writer in, in high school. Um, creating a business plan is a fiction story, <laughs> right? For example, like, yeah. are, are there any threads that you've noticed that are just common through through those? I'm just I'm stunned at how naive I was going into business, and I'm not sure there's not an element of that that isn't important in the entrepreneurial process. I mean, we all know that the entrepreneurial energy and process is different from the managerial later stage, you know, running and growing a company. It's not impossible for an individual to make that transition, but it can be hard. And we all know companies that are slowly being killed by their entrepreneur founders. Um, But I I think that um, 
what was important is, at least to me, was I didn't know what I didn't know. I mean, I had no business training whatsoever. So therefore, you know, I'd say, well, we're passionate about this. Let's just do it. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, you, you begin to learn the risk elements, you know, and you learn by doing, and it doesn't always work. It just doesn't. If you, had, if you knew what you were getting yourself into, you probably never would have started, you know? Well, that's, that's, that's a real big issue. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I can't claim any great business knowledge. Whatever business knowledge I have is retrospective. Yeah. Learn um, by so. doing. Did, did you have uh, a business mentor along the way or someone that may have... Yeah experienced the journey yeah. ahead? Who was that? Um, well, or when we they? first started yeah. the record company in the studio, we used SCORE, the Senior Corps of Retired Executives. They're still around, putting out great work and products. Yeah. yeah, it's amazing. And I would call up, every once in a while, I'd call up someone like Fred Hackett or Dave Coates and say, I'm lost. Can we just have lunch? I just need your advice. You know what I mean? Right. And... And luckily, I was always very connected in the business community. I chaired the business roundtable for a couple of years. So I knew people that I could go to, um, to to ask for help. And it was usually nonspecific help. It was usually more like, you know. Nice little kick in the ass in the right direction, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And that's one of those things that I believe makes Vermont special. Yeah, you know, I think that's I, true. I joke with folks. I said, listen, you know, yeah. there's very few real assholes that survive here because yep. – statistically, we're all going to get stuck in a snowbank or the mud and we'll need to be pulled out. It's a so. perfect metaphor. The other perfect metaphor, I, and I've used that same one, when people talk about growing up in Morrisville and my father working in Stowe as a ski instructor, people would say, well, what was the difference back then? And I would say the difference would be is the Baroness von Trapp would come off the mountain in her Mercedes, and she'd run off the road, and a farmer would see her, and he'd come over with his tractor, and he'd pull her out. And she would say, how much do I owe you? And he would be insulted. Hmm. That's changed. <laughs> oh, man, that's good. And, you know, now having all this perspective, do you find yourself mentoring other folks? Um, I... I do what I guess euphemistically is called networking, where what somebody is asking for is to be on my radar screen for opportunities. Mm -hmm. And I pretty much say yes to everybody. Um, I don't formally mentor, but um, who, whoever I've spent time with knows I'm there. So they can email me or call me and say, hey, listen, I'm thinking about taking this step. What do you think? Or yeah. <clears throat> can you get me an introduction at BPR or, you know, a state agency or whatever? So I'm, I'm very, very conscious of giving back, but it's, it's less formal than strict mentoring. Yeah. And, I, you know, sometimes that's all you need, you know, as an, as an entrepreneur, as a warm introduction or, you know, a, a quick word of advice on something. Exactly. And yeah. We, uh, we stopped counting at about 130 executives, entrepreneurs, yep. faculty um, that volunteer these mentor moments. Yes. 
and I, and I, I kind of prefer that. So it's not a lifetime commitment, Bill, right. to sign up for something. No, it's, I mean, I know mentors. It's a series of dates with... that may occur over a period of years or a semester. Exactly. And um, I will say that is the number one thing that our customers, our businesses um, value and why they come back. It's yeah. it's not for venture money. It's not for yep. a place to work. It, it really is how can I get the people that can make me better, can help my company move forward, and, and God help me avoid two or three of the easy mistakes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So, uh, Bill, we we were reading your bio, and by we, I mean me. Um, I think Dave has it pretty well memorized We needed the now. drive-in screen up in St. Albans to push, put all the, you know, boards and positions on. Yeah, so. if I could just control F, the word chair, um, <laughs> we counted, we lost track after I think 13 or so of uh, the number of boards you've, you've been on. Um, organizations like UVM Medical Center, uh, Vermont Business Roundtable, VPR. Tell us about sort of what that's been, I mean, you rarely hear people that have done that much um, and been part of boards like that. What makes it successful for you? And, and what, can, what can you kind of teach us about that role? Well, I have, I have tremendous respect for the nonprofit sector. I mean, to me, the difference between the for-profit and the not-for-profit spec- sectors is pretty specious. And <clears throat> excuse me, one of, the, one of the challenges in the nonprofit sector is there's not a really thorough understanding of how governance should work. A lot of boards are hyperactive and meddle in the mission mm. when they shouldn't. And if they just did what their job definition was, the organization would be much stronger. So um, I, I've, always, I've always enjoyed um, helping a nonprofit really understand how that works and, and kind of getting that in proper alignment. I also, for me, it's always been a way of giving back. I've always said I'm not going to be on more than three boards at once, and I've, I've How's that go? stuck to that. Yeah? It's, at once. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But currently, I'm on three boards, and um, and uh, the other thing is, it's like going to college. You learn so much. I mean, I just finished a long stint on the ACLU board, and I was fascinating. You know, just what I learned. Yeah. And I, I currently chair the Vermont College of Fine Arts, which is a, a an amazingly unique college model. Um, that addresses a lot of the issues of affordability mm-hmm. and, uh, and tenure. Um, and that's been a great learning experience. And, um, and I'm on the Shelburne Museum board, and I'm actually on another board. That's four. Uh, I, I, yeah, I, no doubt there's more than three. I was starting to chuckle, <laughs> but uh, uh, and um, thank you for doing that because I, I – I've enjoyed being on nonprofit boards and the Flynn board many years ago. Yep. It was really oh, yeah, wonderful. You learn as much from the people you're sitting with. Exactly. And, and now um, I'm on the uh, board directors for the Vermont Business Roundtable and sort of trying to yep. learn the challenges of healthcare and manufacturing yep. and, and all the rest. And it's, uh, it's important in Vermont. Um, yeah. It's such a big part of our economy. And I mean, it, if, if, ver- if the people who volunteer in Vermont Stop volunteering. This state would oh grind God. to a halt. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm talking about at the community level, right on up to the statewide level. Yeah, it's scary to think Vermonters about. Vermonters are staggeringly generous. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about, you, you mentioned the board that you're on, but just your sort of view of higher education right now? I know we were talking a little bit about it before we started recording, and I was like, oh, no, this is good stuff. I want to hear more about this. But obviously, you know, internationally right now, there's a lot of fear and a lot of change happening. And um, just love to know your thoughts on, on sort of where we're at, uh, maybe specifically in the state. Well, just one sentence on the international piece yeah. is, um, since the current administration has taken office, um, applications to the major STEM colleges in this country are way off because we're, not, we're no longer viewed, the opportunity is, is understood, but we're no longer viewed as welcoming. Mm -hmm. And that's really problematic to pieces, you know, places like Princeton, Stanford, Brown. Scary. Yeah, M MIT. Um, the, the the system is changing. The value equation is broken. You know, a small liberal arts college that costs sixty-five or seventy thousand dollars a year to go to is only available either to the privileged or someone who's willing to sign on to half a life of debt. Yeah. You know, and so that value equation is broken, and it's got to be fixed. And there are ways to fix it. Um, there are a lot of colleges at risk. Um, I think a big piece of it is that colleges were competing for a long time, for the last 30 years, on amenities. Mm -hmm. We have a yoga studio, we have three pools, we have this, we have that. That all costs money. And you know, yeah, someone's name on it, and yeah, they gave half the money to build that, but they didn't give the money to sustain it. Right. And, and that is, and you'd be amazed at the colleges like Yale, Dartmouth, Middlebury, we were talking about earlier, that no, they're not going to go out of business, but are they hemorrhaging money on an annual income expense basis? Yeah. So we need to really reinvent the higher ed system, and we need to rethink it. Um, and it affects everything. It affects health care. I mean, we were just talking about this at lunch. Um, the kids, kids come into the, the medical system wanting to, either be, um, wanting to either be a barefoot doctor. They really passionately care about health care. They want to be a healer. Yeah. Or they want to be a specialist and make a lot of money. By the time most of them get in and are in the second or third year and they see the debt piling up, they have to make the decision economically to become a specialist. Because a specialist can make anywhere from three or four hundred thousand up to a million four, which means right they, here in Vermont, right? Which means they don't go to rural populations either. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Whereas the people we really need, the primary care and the pediatric people, they make between one hundred and thirty-five and two hundred and ten, and you're trying to pay back two hundred thousand dollars worth of loans with that. So there are just these built-in flaws in the system that we have to address. We can't tweak our way yeah, out it's of this. Be we have to reinvent the, things. The incrementalism got us here. You know, yeah. a bunch of, it, it looks like the Vermont farmhouse. You yeah. just keep adding to it, and then, then you, the hot water isn't on the north side anymore, yep. and you put another hot water in here. It just, it just yeah. the system gets perverse. Exactly. And thinking differently, I think uh, the entrepreneurial approach to it is, is probably 
where hope rests. I, I think so too. The fearlessness I mean, of something new. Yep. Um, yep. Think about all the things we could be that we're not. You know, and they're scary, mm-hmm. but you got to think about them. You do. I, I'd like to ask you. You recently wrote a, a piece called "We Can Do Better," which was sort of a, a challenge to the the economic development apparatus and policymakers and and we as job you know, creators and, and business owners to maybe come up with a new model. Would you just sort of summarize what what the gist of we can do better is for us? I mean, I have said to three past governors, <clears throat> stop spending money on economic development. You're just, you know, there's no strategy here. You know, you're putting money into the system for say, so you can say you're doing it, but we're not really having an impact on economic development, and I felt that way for 30 years. I still feel that way. Um, And in fact, I was talking with the governor about it just a couple of weeks ago. We don't have a strategy. Um, We we put up a certain amount of money, and everybody makes their claims on it. The regional development authorities, the regional, the community development authorities, the different entities, some of whom are doing really good work, but there's no core strategy. You know, and, and the first place I would start would be I'd want a database of all the businesses, including the entrepreneurial enterprises that, like you all, are, are so good at championing. I'd want a database. I wouldn't want a whole lot of information. I'd want to know their core business, get a rough sense of their balance sheet. Then I would develop the same over here on the research and education side. What are the principal research institutions in the Northeast? So then all of a sudden you have, you've got an opportunity to look. Part of the problem is we think at everything in terms of Vermont. Right. You know, so we have these boundaries. But the reality is economic systems are regional. I mean, the reality is economic development is Quebec, Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, upstate New York. Uh, the, the conjunction changed. It used to be here or there. Now it's here and there. Exactly. And. Exactly. And as long as we're you know, totally parochial and talk about Vermont economic development, we're not going to get anywhere. Because you may have a business in your incubator here whose ideal partner would be Cornell. And because it's not the University of Vermont, does that mean that they're not going to work with Cornell developing a new product or finding, you know, a, a deployment strategy? So I just think we're thinking too small. Yeah. That's all. I've been encouraged here with Visa that, I mean, at our board level, we have the president of Norwich, the provost and senior vice president of research at UVM, the head of innovation at Middlebury, the yeah. president of Champlain College yeah. with entrepreneurs, with economics. It's almost a third, a third, a third. Yep. And I've been really encouraged of late as people share. And from when Sam and I try to help a team build a business, we just want a biologist. There's 10 biology departments in Vermont. Yeah. Let's get, who, who do we go to? Or if we're building a company, we'll take students from Johnson State and, yeah. and UVM and Champlain. Like, what does it take to solve the problem to build a business, exactly. build a future? And I think, you know, I, I feel like more and more that, that is, uh, there's less friction with that. I mean, we've been doing the, uh, we just started working with the state of Vermont and UVM um, to do an NSF i short course here. Um, through the node out of New York. So it's regional. It's not mm-hmm. just Vermont-based, and we're working with folks from Cornell and 
in all over the state, whether higher ed, economic development, and, and just training these people together. Yeah. Um, and it's it's been really, really rewarding and, and seeing such a larger impact than if it was just limited to the state or UVM yeah. or right. Vermont. See, that, that to me makes so much sense. And I just have to say this from an amusing standpoint. As an entrepreneur, when I hear NSF, I don't hear National Science Foundation. I hear non-sufficient funds. <laughs> <laughs> PTSD there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. Um, but, but I think you're absolutely right. I mean, that, that is where it, it needs to be. I'm, uh, I've had a thought, and I've, I try to look for patterns and different use cases for maybe a model that, that is uh, relevant. Because entrepreneurship is really about timing, when to get in, when to get out, right? And harnessing the people and the resources. And how um, you get out. Yeah, how do you get out, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, just, just like uh, the efficiency Vermont utility really was a leading model program to get us to change our light bulbs and to invest in efficiency. Um, is there an opportunity to use that utility-like model for, for you know, a, a new economy util utility where, or an economic development utility so that team has a 10-year contract based upon some public-private mm -hmm. derived scope of, of goals? And I haven't found an example of that anywhere. We have very good, I think VITA and the, the Economic Development Authority does a great job and, and many other groups, but I, I kind of feel your sentiment that um, a new order uh, of intention and purpose and, and, and model yeah. uh, we need, because I don't know what else to do, quite frankly. I think, I, I mean, I think your point's really interesting, and I'm sort of thinking about it for the first time. It's, there, there are... There are a couple of intriguing elements. Um, one is, is the structure a competitive capitalist institution or is it a highly regulated monopoly? That, that becomes an issue. And it's interesting because we've had success with both, certainly in communications. Um, but the irony is we're now experimenting with highly regulated monopolies in healthcare. And the key is less the quality of the healthcare, which we, you know, love to complain about access and so on and so forth, as the quality of the regulation. That's a real issue. Yeah. And so there's, there's that issue. The other issue is where are where are the strategic resources? And this is one of the things, Governor Snelling put in a strategic planning institute in Vermont and Governor Cunin took it out because it was expensive. And one of the things that I said to the governor, I've been saying for a long time is, you've got two to 300 men and women in this state who have lived a long time and who have been in the nonprofit and the for-profit sector. You could pay five to nine of them a $500 a year honorarium, give them an office and a secretary and a copying machine. So for 200,000 bucks, you could have the best minds in the state and rotate them. Mm -hmm. And they would be available to businesses, they would be available to the legislature, and they'd be available to the executive branch. You don't need to spend, you know, right. $2 million to have a strategic planning agency. 
Right. And there's examples of that. I mean, the Debt Affordability Committee. Exactly. I mean, that that has been the yeah the voice of reason and metering over Absolutely. the years. That that's been important. Um, wow, Sam, Dave, it's time. I, I know. I'm sad. Uh, do you want to ask? Yeah, okay. I'd love to. I mean, we've already talked a lot about change, which I think is a nice warm-up to this question. If you had a magic wand and you could change one thing about Vermont today, what would it be? It would be, especially in the government branch, but all over, we would stop being reactive and trying to fix things or tweak things that are all of a sudden become apparently broken and we would be looking strategically at data that we have. You know, what are the trends? What's happening in journalism? What's happening in healthcare? What's happening in higher ed? What's happening in public education? You know, what's happening in the business community? Um, what's happening in agriculture? What's happening in the environment? We know a lot, but we don't use that information. If I could, you know, do a magic wand, it would be that we would start thinking prospectively instead of retrospectively. So I mean, big shift. Yeah. So much of what we do is like, oh, my God, somebody was shot. We have to have a law. Right. Or this happened. You know, five companies in Bennington went out of business. We have to do something in Bennington. Yeah. There was a natural disaster. We have to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, Michael Jagger summed it up when he did this podcast. And he said, you know, in his own business, like, we killed everything that we knew. We design, we're designing the future we want with intention and purpose. Mm -hmm. And I think... Beautifully uh, said. Yeah, pretty, he's pretty uh, amazing that way. We, we're trying to get a picture of Michael for the wall here. He's, uh -huh. He's like no, he's, uh, our he's, little uh, spirit here. He's been, he's been just brilliant. Yeah, a as brilliant. have you, Bill. And I, I can't thank well. you enough for your, your civic commitment, your writing, reminding us what makes Vermont special, challenging, Nothing makes it special. Did you learn nothing? Come on, Dave. It's special. <laughs> I think the snowbank thing is kind of special. Yeah. I'm, you I'm, would try getting pushed out of a snowbank in where I grew up in Massachusetts. It's not going to happen. Oh, no. Sorry, Mom. <laughs> Bill, Great. thank you so much. Thank you so That's much. That's my great pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. This has been Start Here with Sam and Dave, a podcast sharing the stories of active, aspiring, and accidental entrepreneurs. This series has been made possible by the Vermont Technology Council and Consolidated Communications. Please follow us at VSET, that's V-C-E-T on Twitter. Thanks for listening. Let's write some fiction this afternoon, and we'll get back to work. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>